Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. This morning I want to continue the series of messages that we started last week on the things most surely believed among us. And want to go back to the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and complete this thought on the doctrine of the new birth or being born again. And we will read just a few verses now from John chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. Jesus answered and said unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Last Sunday morning I mentioned that I had four main principles that emerge from this passage of Scripture. First, the source of the new birth is God. The word again in this passage means from above. And only God can quicken the soul. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you hath he quickened, that is, made alive. Who is the he in that verse? It's God. You hath he quickened, who were dead. Now that's man's condition by nature. He is spiritually incapacitated. He's unresponsive to stimulus, but yet God is able to raise the dead to life, not only in a physical resurrection, but spiritually, when he awakens the natural man's heart to spiritual things. The source of the new birth is God. And then we talked about the nature of the new birth. The nature of the new birth is that it is a radical transformation in the inward man, on the inside of you. It's an awakening in your heart in which suddenly that spirit of man that was previously not interested in God is given spiritual desires, spiritual life, and the gift of faith. The nature of the new birth is that it is something supernatural, something miraculous. I wonder if you know this morning that a miracle has already happened in your life if you've been born again. Somebody says, I wish a miracle would happen to me. Well, if you're a child of God, it's already happened in the sense that supernaturally your heart has been transformed. You've been changed and God has implanted his nature inside of your heart. Just as a child has the nature of the parent, so the child of God has the nature of the heavenly Father in his heart. Ephesians 4.24 talks about this when he says that the inward man is created in righteousness and true holiness. 
God is righteous, God is holy. And when the new man is created in the heart, it's created in righteousness in the nature of God and true holiness. 1 John 3, 9 says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed, that is the divine nature, remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. There's something about you that's holy if you're a child of grace. Now, somebody said, I look in the mirror, I don't see much holiness. I see a lot of imperfections. But I'll tell you, there's something on the inside of you, my friends, that is godlike that has spiritual desires and that's a miracle that's a miracle and it's happened in your life colossians 3 1 says if you then be risen with christ seek those things that are above notice if you've been raised from death and sin to life in christ then you can seek heavenly things it's only the child of god who has spiritual interest and spiritual capacities so the nature of the new birth is it's a radical transformation of the soul in which you're made a partaker of the divine nature in the inward man. You know, it doesn't eradicate the old man, though, does it? I still have the nature I was born with. And the flesh, that's what that's called in the New Testament, is contrary to the spirit that indwells my heart. Galatians 5 says, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit is against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. They're at loggerheads with one another, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You ever find your fairest pretensions to be more godly, complicated by your sinful nature? I do. You know, the old flesh comes up here in the pulpit with me. I can't get away from it. It sits down with me when I eat a meal. It lays down with me at night, and it rises with me in the morning. But the fact is, my friends, there's also a part of me now, after regeneration, that is interested in God, wants to be more godly, and seeks to learn more and more about Him. And I dare say that your interest in spiritual things is an evidence that you've been born of the Spirit. Now, those are two, the source of the new birth, the nature of the new birth. Let's talk now about the necessity of the new birth. And you see that in the seventh verse. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Interestingly, there are four musts, three of them in John 3 and one in John 4, the next chapter. John 3 says later in this chapter, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That is, it's a necessity that Jesus die on the cross. Then in John 3.30, John the Baptist says, He must increase and I must decrease. So Christ is to be glorified, not man. Then in John 4, Jesus says, Those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then in this text, ye must be born again. Now the word must is the strongest verb in the English language. In this verse, it comes from the Greek verb die, D-E-I, and it means it's a logical necessity. It's necessary. And I think we see this thought of the necessity of the new birth back in the third verse also when Jesus said, except or unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Verse 5, except, that is, this is necessary, a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Let's talk for a moment about how necessary the new birth is. Regeneration or a change in your heart at some point between the moment of your conception and the end of your natural life is absolutely essential before anyone can go to heaven when they die. Before anyone can understand the truth. You see, a person who hasn't been born again can't understand spiritual things. Before anyone loves and desires to serve God, they must be born again or function in any capacity in the spiritual realm, in the kingdom, is what he calls it in this passage. The new birth is absolutely essential. The fact is, you and I were born with a natural birth that is very flawed. We're born sinners. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And you know, that nature of sin doesn't stay dormant for very long. It begins to exhibit itself early on in a little infant's life, doesn't it? You ever heard a child express selfishness, a little baby? They're interested in being comfortable, being fed. He goes about, as soon as he's born, speaking lies, says Psalm 58 verse 3. It's not long before that old nature begins to express itself in sins of practice. And of course, we get more sophisticated in our sins as we get older, don't we? But you see the core of it, you see the root of it in those early days and years of a child's life. Now, I know you think your grandchildren are perfect. You know, I mean, I look at mine, at pictures of mine and say they're perfect. <laughs> but the fact is, when you're around them for a little while, you learn that they're a chip off the old block, right? They are you multiplied. And they have the same tendencies toward self-centeredness, toward outbursts of anger, toward every sin imaginable. Little children, my friends, are not innocent. Now you say, Brother Mike, that's not popular. Well, it's biblical. And the fact is, it's because of that nature that we have that is anti-God and that is self-centered, that wants to enthrone self on the throne that we need a second birth. We need to be born again. Have you ever wished at any point in your life that you could just go back and start over? You say, okay, I've messed up this project. Let's just tear it down and start again. Well, is it possible to start over with your life? Somebody says, that's, that's not possible. I've made so many mistakes, have so much baggage, have so many stumblings and mumblings and fumblings along life's pathway. I, I wish I could start over, but I can't. I'm telling you, the new birth, being born again, is a fresh start. It's a new beginning. And that's what happens to a person when God decides to call them from death and sin to life in Christ. They have new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And I dare say that it's necessary that every person who will see God's face in peace be born again at some point during their natural lives. And it's necessary for Jewish people. Nicodemus, in our text, was a ruler of the Jews. We noted last time that that indicates that he was 
politically powerful. It would be comparable to United States Senator. He was very politically influential, a ruler of the Jews. He was also, we're told, a Pharisee, which means he was a theologian, a religious man. And he was a Jew, which means he's a natural descendant of Abraham. But you see, Jewish people like Nicodemus need to be born again. Powerful people, influential people of reputation, religious influencers like Nicodemus need to be born again. And not only Jewish people, but Gentile people, common people, average people, secular people, males and females, rich and poor, old and young, red, yellow, black, and white. Every person who will see God's face in peace needs the new birth. It's necessary. It's absolutely essential. Ye must be born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And your fellow Pharisees that are included in the words in verse 2, we know that you're a teacher come from God. That is, Nicodemus says, among my peers in the Pharisees, there are others who recognize you're different than other self-styled rabbis or teachers. We know you're a teacher come from God. Jesus said, ye, and then the word ye is plural here. Ye must be born again. So the fact is that the new birth is essential. Now, you might ask the question today, why? And the answer is Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. It is a fact, my beloved. Our depravity, our natural condition is such that we cannot save ourselves. We can't help ourselves. We can't be pleasing to God. In fact, Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Have you ever noticed that interesting verse? He doesn't say, except you see the kingdom, you can't be born again. Now, I dare say many of our friends in the religious world teach that very thought. They say, if you want to be born again, you've got to see the truth. You've got to hear the truth. You've got to experience the kingdom, as it were. You've got to hear the gospel. You've got to see that you have a need and that Jesus is your Savior. You've got to see the kingdom in order to be born again. Jesus said the very opposite. Except you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Except a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. You can't live a Christian life until you've been born again. This is crucial. Life must precede action. You know, the most basic law of science is biogenesis. The law of biogenesis that says life comes before action. And that's a no-brainer. That's a given, isn't it? We all understand that. A person who's not alive can't do anything. Life has to come first. And that's all we're saying in theological terms is spiritual life must precede activity entering into the kingdom, seeing the kingdom. You see, the dead can't see, the dead can't do anything, but you see, once you have life, once you've been born again, you can see the kingdom, you can enter the kingdom, and the concept of the kingdom is simply this idea of serving King Jesus in a spiritual way. He's the king, and he has blessings for his subjects, 
But you know, those blessings are only available to those who first have spiritual life. Except a man be born again. So it's necessary because we're sinners. It's a necessary prerequisite to and condition of seeing and entering into God's kingdom. I want to take you to a text that every old Baptist ought to memorize. It's 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says, For the natural man... Now, who's that? That's man by nature, man in his natural state, as you were born the first time. For the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, for they are foolishness unto him, because they are spiritually discerned. But, the next verse says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Now, notice you've got a contrast in these two verses between the natural man and the spiritual man between man as he was in his natural birth and man as he is after he's been born again. He says the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Now that word cannot is interesting. Cannot. I remember in the third grade, I would ask the teacher, raise my hand, Michael. Yes, ma'am, can I get a drink from the water fountain? And she would say, I'm sure you can. And I would get up out of my chair and she would say, I didn't tell you to go get a drink. I said, you said I can. She said, the correct question was, may I, not can I. Can denotes ability. Can I get a drink from the water fountain? If you know how to push the button and you're tall enough to lean over, then you can. But may I denotes permission. Now I want you to notice, he says the natural man cannot. That means he doesn't have the ability. He doesn't have the capacity. You see, man by nature is so fallen that he can't respond to the things of the Spirit. Now, I would ask you, is the gospel a thing of the Spirit or a thing of the flesh? It's a thing of the Spirit, right? It's a spiritual thing. Is the church a thing of the Spirit or a thing of the carnal mind? It's a thing that the Lord set up. It's a thing of the Spirit. The spiritual realm, in other words is reserved for those who've been born again. For the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. He can't understand the gospel. That is, it doesn't mean anything to him. Now, I'm sure a, an unregenerate person could read the Bible and, and analyze the historical narratives and follow the developing plot, but it doesn't touch his heart. You see, it doesn't mean anything to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. They're spiritually understood. Only a spiritual person then has the capacity to embrace and understand and believe spiritual things. And so he says, just a minute, brother. You're saying that you've got to be born again before you can believe? That's exactly right. Regeneration precedes faith. That's a good motto for what we believe here at Bethel Church, that life comes before action. Only those who've been born have the ability to believe in Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few verses. 1 John 5, 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now the word believeth is in the present perfect tense. And he says the man who believes already is, already has the new birth. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. John 5, 24. He that heareth my words, present tense, and believeth 
on him that sent me, present tense, hath, past tense, everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is past from death unto life. That verse does not say that the man who hears and believes will get everlasting life. It says he already has it. And then John 1.13 says, which believe on his name, which were born. Notice they believe right now, but they've already been born. Past tense. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So interestingly, life must come before action. Regeneration precedes faith. And the new birth is necessary because our first birth has left us aliens from God. Now, you may know that all worldly theories teach the divinity of man. They teach that man has something of God in him. In fact, most of your Eastern religions teach that God is just an energy or a force and that you have that power within you and that you can be divine. That's really what the devil taught in the Garden of Eden when he said you can do something to be as God. If you eat, you will be as God. You can do something to make yourself divine. The other idea is that God does something to you, and that's what makes you divine. Not that you do it, but that God does it to you. And that's the gospel message, my friends. Man is not naturally divine. He doesn't have an island of righteousness. There's not a little bit of good about the worst of us. In fact, we're totally depraved. You say, Brother Mike, that's sort of offensive to the VIP mentality that's so popular today to teach the doctrine of total depravity. Well, it's a fact, my friends, that the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. That's Romans 3.10. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. They are together become unprofitable. Together. When did we all become unprofitable? In Adam. When he fell, we fell. He's the federal head, the representative of the human race, and we were represented in him. When Adam sinned, that original sin is communicated to all of his offspring. They're together unprofitable. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Their tongues are deceitful. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. He says, the way of peace They have not known destruction and misery in their ways. That passage reads not like a diagnosis of a sick man. It reads like an autopsy of a dead man. (laughs) By nature, in other words, there's no hope for you and me unless we're given life. And who's the only life giver in the universe? The one who originally gave life, who created something out of nothing in the morning of time, and the one who gave you natural life is the only one, my friends, who can give spiritual life to those who are dead in trespasses and in sins. Listen again to Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Man's condition by nature is spiritual death. He's not able to function. He's not able to move toward God. He doesn't want God. He has no desire for God. He doesn't seek God, love God, or fear God. He says, among whom also we all had our conversation. In times past, this was my story in my past life, and it's yours too. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, and here's the good news, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. 
you are saved. Now, do you know what grace means? It's unmerited favor. It's God bestowing blessing when you hadn't done anything to earn it. You had done nothing to deserve it. It's God freely and unconditionally stooping, condescending to bless those who are incapable of improving themselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, says Ephesians 2, lest any man should boast. That's a regeneration passage in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, and it gives all the glory to God. He gets all the credit. You know, the truth will always give all the glory to God, none to man. Somebody says, when I get to heaven, I want to look up that preacher that preached to me and tell him things. No, my friends, every eye will be focused on Jesus Christ in that place. The song that will be sung will be, Thou art worthy, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. Indeed, my friends, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. There's not any place for saying thank you to mom, dad. You say, my parents helped me to come to Christ. No, I'm telling you, if you've come to Christ, it's because he's drawn you to him. Interestingly, John 6, uses that word. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up again at the last day. Somebody says, well, there it is, preacher. To be drawn means to be wooed or enticed. And the Holy Spirit and the church is wooing you, saying, please come to the Lord. Please get eternal life. Well, you're dead. <laughs> what can a dead man do? How can he come? How can he choose life? That word draw does not mean to woo, to invite, or to entice. It means literally to drag with force and effort, like a man draws water out of a well. Now, when you draw water from a well, do you woo and entice? Do you say, here, water, water, water? <laughs> Please get into the bucket and come out of the well. No, you reach down your arm and you physically, by an act of your own strength and exertion, act upon that object. Interestingly, John 4.11 uses the same word draw, when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, and she says, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. That's the same word in John 6, to drag. Thou hast nothing to draw with. It's the same word in John 21, 11, when it says that Peter drew the net full of fishes to the land. He drew it. Does that mean that he enticed the net to get on the beach? No, he physically exerted strength and force upon that net. It's the same word used in Acts chapter 16, verse 19, when it says the multitude drew Paul and Silas into the marketplace. And in Acts 21, verse 30, when it says that the people drew Paul out of the temple and forthwith the doors were shut. It's the same word used in James chapter 2, verse 6, when James asks, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. Now, when he says they draw you to the judgment seat, do they invite you to come to court? <laughs> no, they actually apprehend you. They lay hands on you and bring you, you see. That's the same word in John 6, when he says, no man can come to me except, and praise God for the blessed exception, except the Father which has sent me draw him. I want to tell you, my friends, when a sinner that's dead in sins is brought to Christ, it's because 
The Father has drawn him by his sovereign power, by his sovereign grace. Now, somebody says, well, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that ye must be born again. Isn't he saying that you need to assume responsibility for your own new birth? I want you to notice that the Lord Jesus does not advise Nicodemus to do anything in this passage. When he says you must be born again, that, that's not an imperative sentence. Do you know what an imperative sentence is? Some of you younger folks may remember from grammar class. Hopefully some of you older folks do as well. That an imperative sentence gives a command or direction. Jesus does not tell Nicodemus to do anything. This isn't an imperative sentence. It's an indicative or declarative sentence when he says this is just a fact. Even you, Nicodemus, must be born again. It's an error to assume that because the Greek verb die speaks of a necessity, that it also conveys the idea of a human responsibility. What Jesus is saying here is simply a statement of fact. In fact, the entire conversation here in John 3 is teaching that regeneration is not something that anyone can do for himself or herself. Flesh only produces flesh. The new birth is a necessity, but no man can make it happen. No man can cause it to happen in his own life. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is, what your social status is, no one is safe apart from the work of grace. It's a sovereign act of God that must take place before anyone can see God's face in peace. Now in the few moments remaining, let's talk about the agency. We've talked about the source of the new birth, the nature of it, the necessity of it. Let's talk about the agency of the new birth. How does it happen? And you see the answer to that question in the eighth verse. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Now, everybody in here, I'm sure, is familiar with wind. I love how Jesus taught. He used examples that were common to ordinary folks. Fish, bread, you know, wind. The wind blows where it pleases. The word listeth means pleaseth. Now, is that true? Does the wind blow where it wants to blow, or does somebody control the wind? Does the meteorologist, the weatherman, control the wind when he says there's a, you know, the jet stream is right here and these are the winds and here will be the wind speed. Is he the one who's making that happen? No, he's just reporting what's happening, right? The wind, it has a mind of its own. Now, actually, that's not technically the case. The sun actually controls the movement of the wind. And you think about the imagery, the parallel there. It's the covenant of grace. It's the Father who controls where the Spirit goes. According to Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, whereby you cry of a Father. But anyway, the wind blows where it pleases. And by the way, the wind is not limited to North America. There's wind in South America, right? There's wind in Europe. There's wind in Asia. There's wind in Africa. Everywhere you go. There's a lot of wind in West Texas where I grew up. <laughs> a lot of wind. Wind is something that's very common, right? And it blows regardless of the politics of a certain country. Somebody says, we're a communist country. We're a dictatorship. We're a totalitarian country. We are 
you know, a democracy. They have different governments. I'll tell you, the wind blows where it pleases. Regardless of the Great Wall of China, the wind can blow into China. It's not stopped by man's impediments, right? And the word wind here is pneuma. We get the word pneumatic drill, you know, driven by air. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And that's the same word for the Holy Spirit, by the way, in the New Testament. Spirit, pneuma. And by the way, he's going to talk about that here. Being born of the Spirit. He's already mentioned that in verse 5. Notice now, the wind bloweth where it listeth. It's sovereign, in other words. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. You can't tell where it starts, and you can't tell where it's headed. Now you can get the general direction, but you don't know where it'll stop. There's a mystery about it. Okay, the first point, before I finish reading the verse, the first thing I think it's important to say is this verse teaches God is sovereign in the new birth. The wind cannot be controlled by legislative bodies, geographic obstacles, public opinion, cultural trends. Likewise, the Holy Spirit cannot be foiled or frustrated in his regenerating activity. The wind blows where it listeth. God is sovereign. The second point from this verse is that regeneration, or the new birth, is a divine mystery. There's something about it that we can't explain. Right? You cannot tell whence it cometh or whether it goes. Somebody says, I just saw the wind. No, you saw the effects of the wind. You saw the leaves flutter. The branches sway. The object blown from this location to this one. You saw the effects of it, but the wind itself is mysterious. We cannot tell whence it cometh, that is, from where it comes, or whither it goeth, that is, where it's headed to. There's something mysterious about it. And I want to tell you, there's something mysterious that baffles scientific investigation in this work of grace in the soul. You can't just distill it to... This one, two, three. Somebody says, here's the plan of salvation. No, I'm telling you, God works. And my friends, he moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. Sometimes he quickens a little baby while it's still in its mother's womb. I know that happened to John the Baptist when he was in his mother's womb because when Mary showed up and announced that she was expecting the Messiah, the babe leaped in her womb for joy, it says. It's not uncommon for a baby to move in utero, but to manifest joy, which is, according to Galatians 5.22, a fruit of the Spirit, that is uncommon. John rejoiced. The little preborn infant, John the Baptist, rejoiced at the news that the Messiah was about to be born. That indicates to me, because that's a fruit of the Spirit, joy is. Notice this is something like a tree produces fruit. You've got to have the tree before the fruit is produced. So the, the person must have the Holy Spirit before they can produce the fruit of the Spirit. And John the Baptist exhibits, he displays joy at the news of the Messiah's incarnation. Indeed, my friends, regeneration is a divine mystery. And it seems to be the rule there may be exceptions to this rule that most people are unaware of the moment in which they were born again. Now, I think last week we mentioned that there are three people that are mentioned in the Bible 
where we can pinpoint when they were born again. And interestingly, one of them was, again, before natural birth. One of them was in midlife, and one of them was at the very end of life. And it teaches me that God is not limited in quickening his people. He can do it in the womb. He can do it during the middle of your life. He can do it right at the last second before you breathe your last breath. The three are John the Baptist in his mother's womb, Saul of Tarsus, who was struck down on the road to Damascus in his midlife, and then the thief on the cross who railed, who joined his fellow in cursing Jesus at the beginning of their crucifixion, but by the time that it was all over, he was saying, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now I think it's interesting there was no preacher there to preach to him, nobody to administer the ordinance of baptism. There was nobody to get him to pray the sinner's prayer, make a decision for Christ, but the Lord changed his heart. He once despised you. Now he embraces Jesus. Now he fears God. Remember, the natural man has no fear of God before his eyes. So you show me somebody that fears God, I'll show you someone who gives evidence that a change has taken place in his heart. So regeneration is a divine mystery. You say, well, I, I know when I was born again. Well, you may know when you were first awakened, when you were enlightened. You know, when your eyes were opened, somebody says, the first time I understood the gospel, that's when I was born again. I made a decision that day. Well, I want to tell you, as soon as the thunder roars, the lightning has already struck. As soon as you start feeling conviction of sin and you see your need for the Savior, that's proof you've already been given life. That the Lord has reached you at some point previous to that. So I suspect most people confuse the moment of their gospel conversion, the moment of their illumination, when their eyes are opened with the moment when they were actually born again. Because it's mysterious. It's like the wind blowing. And you can't tell whence it cometh nor whither it goeth. So the three points from this verse are that God is sovereign in the new birth. He does what He pleases. Secondly, regeneration is a mysterious work. And thirdly, this verse teaches, notice he goes on to say, Canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. This verse teaches that everyone who is born again is born again the same way. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, I suggest only those who believe in salvation by sovereign grace would affirm this principle that everyone who's born again is born again in the same way. Because most of our religious friends would say that God has a separate way of saving people in different circumstances. For instance, what about the infant that dies in infancy? Throughout human history, there have been multiplied millions of babies that have perished. The mortality rate among infants was very high in medieval times and in uncivilized cultures. And the fact is there are still many, many little babies that die in infancy. How will they be saved? You say, well, they've got to hear the gospel and believe it and, and make a decision for Christ, accept him. How can a little infant that dies in infancy do that? What about mentally handicapped people? People who can't process logical or rational arguments. 
Somebody says, you first have to admit you're a sinner. You know, the ABCs, the plan of salvation. Somebody says, you first have to acknowledge or admit, that's A, that you're a sinner. Then you have to believe in Jesus. Then you have to confess Him with your mouth. And that is how you get eternal life, how you get born again. You've got to do these things in order to have spiritual life. How can a mentally handicapped person who can't process logical thought like that, how can they do that? What about people who lived before the gospel in the Old Testament? First of all, how about people who lived before the law? You know, there was 2,500 years from Adam to Moses, 2,500 years before the law was ever given. Somebody says, Old Testament people were saved by the law. Well, what about those who lived for 2,500 years before the law was given? How were they saved? Are they all condemned to hell? Or are some of them in heaven? And then... How about those who lived under the Old Testament? It's when a person's theology of salvation is awry that they have to invent a different way of saving sinners in different circumstances. But Jesus said everyone who's born of the Spirit is born the same way. I'm telling you the grace of God through the immediate and the word immediate. We, we think of the word immediate as meaning what? Instantaneously, right? But think of the word media is the root, is a means, a means, an instrument. Like a plumber's pipe is a medium for conveying water. Media. You turn on Grace Alone Radio and you start listening. That's a media. It's a means of communication. Well, immediate, you put the prefix I-M in front of it, that negates the root word. It means without means, without media, directly. We believe in the immediate work of the Holy Spirit. That is, he doesn't use the preacher, he doesn't use the church, he doesn't use the Bible, he doesn't use the evangelist, he doesn't use a special song, he works directly. And again, Galatians 4, 6, because you are adopted sons in the covenant, God sends forth, listen to this, the spirit of his son into your hearts, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. Back in my early ministry, I was in an argument, well, I was going to say argument, in a discussion. I got in a lot more arguments back then than I do now with local preachers, local pastors. Back in my early ministry, my first pastorate, I was in a discussion with a denominational pastor who one of my church members was starting to attend this person's church because of a boyfriend. And I was fit to be tied and I was trying to, you know, win her back. I didn't want to lose her from the truth, from the church, to this uh, denominational church. So I was talking to him about his theology of salvation and so forth. And uh, I argued for the principle that grace is free. Grace is free. We sang that this morning, didn't we? Praise you the Lord, oh praise him every nation. Grace is free. He said, well that's true, preacher. But he said, if I were to send you a free gift through the post office, you'd have to go down and accept it and pick it up before it would be yours. And I told him, I said, that makes sense. But the only problem with it is God didn't send the free gift of salvation through the post office. He sent it into your hearts. And I quoted this verse. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart. That is, He's not just coming to the door and asking you to open, but He's coming inside and taking over. Into your hearts, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. 
See, my friends, when a person's born again, there's a heart operation, a heart transplant that takes place. Ezekiel 36 says he takes away the hard and stony heart and he gives a heart of flesh, a heart that has the capacity to feel, a heart that is tender. And that's a divine operation. He's the great cardiac surgeon. He's the only one who can change the heart. Indeed, my friends, Arminian theology requires a separate method for the unevangelized heathen, infants that die in infancy, the mentally handicapped, people who lived prior to the law, the individual who lived under Moses' law, and the person with access to the gospel. But immediate Holy Spirit regeneration reaches the infant, the infidel, the heathen, the mentally deficient, the Old Testament Jew and the New Testament Christian. Somebody says, well, Brother Mike, what about some problem verses like 1 Peter 1.23 that says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God. Isn't he teaching instrumental salvation there? Instrumental regeneration that he uses the Word. What Word are you talking about in that verse? By the Word of God which liveth, and he's talking about a living Word, and abideth forever in other words, this Word is the living Word who is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. What about Hebrews 4.12? For the Word of God is quick, that is, it's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow as, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Read the next verse. Neither is there any creature which is not manifest in His sight. That Word in Hebrews 4.12, is a his, not an it. For all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Indeed, the context bears out the immediacy of Holy Spirit regeneration. God does not use the works of the sinner on one end, nor the efforts of the gospel preacher on the other, as either the basis or the method for imparting life to the soul. Faith is a gift of God in regeneration. You say, Brother Mike, what does that mean? It means that the sinner responds. Faith's always a response to God's word, to God's speech. The sinner responds. When the dead hear, the dead respond. They live. The sinner responds to the life-giving voice of the Lord Jesus Christ like Lazarus responded to the command of Jesus to come forth in John 11. The Lord is the active cause. The sinner's the passive recipient. This is irresistible grace. And now, when a person's born again, he or she can function in the kingdom. You have the ability to hear, to see. You have spiritual perception now. And that life will never be taken away from you. That will live forever. That's proof that your body will be changed because the Spirit of His Son dwells in you. He that quickened your heart will also quicken your mortal body, says Romans 8.11, by His Spirit that dwells within you. As soon as a child of God dies, immediately they go home to heaven, right? The spirit, because it's quickened, it's newborn. The body's placed in the grave, but when the Lord Jesus comes back, He's going to raise that body and give you a new body to match your new heart. He's going to glorify the body to match your regenerate soul and reunite them so that body, soul, and spirit, the redeemed will be in heaven with Jesus forever and ever singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Indeed, my beloved, I believe in the new birth, that it's a sovereign work of God, and He never fails. 
And if you have interest in Him and love for others and a desire to learn more in your life and to be a holy and a righteous person, those are evidences that you're a child of grace, that He's quickened your heart. A miracle has already taken place in your life. Yeah.